You're listening to a CFCC audio podcast. For news and service times, visit www.cfccnet.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are very excited that you're here. Uh, we want to start by saying thank you for a, an absolutely amazing week of EBS. Uh, we had a lot of kids that had a really good time. They got to learn about Jesus, and you guys made that possible. So thank you very much. We also have a number of announcements that we want you to be aware of in the bulletin. Um, if you look right inside here, we've got some events coming up. Our uh, CFC Explorers have a couple movie trips that they're going to be going on. Uh, the Monday Ladies Night Bible Study is going to have a bunco night on August 6th. Child care is provided for that. And um, we wanted to give you guys a gift of Right Now Media. Uh, if you were here before, you may be familiar with it, but if you're relatively new to us, Right Now Media is kind of like Netflix, but it contains Bible studies, it contains uh, videos on parenting, it contains videos on leadership, there are things for the kids. It's a really, really good resource, and it doesn't cost you anything. The church pays for subscriptions for all of you guys. Um, and so if you're interested in activating your subscription, the instructions on how to do that are in this bulletin, so make sure you take that with you. And, and, and then we just want to uh, say that today is a special day because we get to celebrate with the Palmer family for a couple of big things. In just a little bit, we will be celebrating with them as one of their children is baptized. But first, we have a baby dedication. Palmers, could you guys come on up here? We have Thomas and Kim. Uh, these are their children, Onovan and Adelise and Kaylin. And this is Eliana. And, and so we're here celebrating with them as they dedicate Eliana today. Um, so whenever we do a baby dedication, we like to give the family a small gift and then a letter for the child to open on their 10th birthday. And so we'll just read you a copy of the letter that she'll be getting today. July 28th, oh, I had the wrong day. I wrote it yesterday. July 29th, 2018 was a big day for your family. On this day, your mom and dad dedicated you to the Lord. Your parents think that you're a very special young lady, Eliana. They know that you are a gift from God, and that's one of the reasons they wanted to dedicate you to him. Let me tell you what happened on that Sunday morning 10 years ago. The week leading up to your dedication was a fun one. The weather was beautiful, your grandparents were and cousins were in town visiting, and the atmosphere in the church was very happy. If this was a story, it would be a perfect day. However, that morning got a little bit better because we all paused together and celebrated with your family as they dedicated you to Jesus. Your parents brought you to the front of the church, and I told everyone that your parents wanted to dedicate you. This meant that they wanted to raise you so that you'd grow up knowing that Jesus loves you very much. They wanted you to grow up knowing that you could have Jesus as your savior and your friend. In a sense, they dedicated themselves to helping you come to know Jesus as you got older. Eliana, being dedicated to the Lord didn't make you a Christian. Becoming a Christian is something that you must do for yourself. And I hope that by the time you read this letter, you will already have decided to believe in Jesus as the only one who can forgive you and give you eternal life. 
If you haven't already made that decision to believe in Jesus and become a Christian, I hope that you will do that soon. On the morning you were dedicated, our church was honored to join with your parents, sisters, brother, and your extended family to pray for you. We prayed that God would help you grow into a girl who really loves Jesus and who loves people. We prayed that you would be a courageous and kind person, and we prayed that you would bring much joy to your family and to the Lord. Happy 10th birthday. Sincerely, Travis Wright and Cyfair Christian Church. So we are very excited to pray with you guys today. Um, here is a copy of a book for you. It's called Don't Miss It. Um, and it's just kind of an idea of unique parenting tips and strategies, uh, keeping in mind the different stages that Eliana will go through. Um, I'll get a corrected version of the letter with the right date for you. <laughs> but right now we want to join together and pray with you guys. Father God, thank you so much for the Palmers. Uh, Thank you that they love their children and that they want their children to love you. Lord, we pray that as Eliana continues to grow, we as a church can do everything in our power to model your love for her and encourage her to put her faith in you and trust you for the rest of her life. We pray for her to, to grow into a person who does amazing things for your kingdom, that she has the courage and compassion to show love wherever love is needed. In your name we pray, amen. All right, you guys can have a seat and we will celebrate a baptism with you in just a little bit. Hello, well, you saw me earlier, this is my oldest daughter, Kaylin. And we have a choice, do you want me or Travis to baptize you? And she picked me somehow, so <laughs> that's cool. Um, I'm very excited you're here, Kaylin. Uh, Christ didn't promise us a great life, Ed, but he did say no matter what, he'd be with us. So, just know. <laughs> All right. Uh, repeat after me, Kaylin. Jesus. Jesus. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. There's no other way to God but you. There's no other way to God but you. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. But you died for me. But you died for me. I belong to you now. I belong to you now. And I will follow you. And I will follow you. Alright. Very end of her face. Alright. We're going under. Alright. Who doesn't like heroes? Are you guys fans of heroes? Superheroes, what's not to like about them? They're capable, they're strong, they're wise, they make all the best decisions, they always do what is right. Our country, our culture is obsessed with heroes. Uh, The world is obsessed with heroes, maybe because we need heroes in this world more than ever. Um, You know, the truth is, as much as we like to think ourselves as strong, 
and capable and wise and in control of the surroundings, in control of um, all of the, the things that, that could happen, how we plan and how we, we budget and all these kinds of things. The truth of the matter is that we are anything but strong and capable and wise and in control. Just, if you want proof, just watch an episode of America's Funniest Videos, right? It'll prove to you right off the bat that we are not in control of things. Many of us lead lives that are full of chaos. They're full of stress. They're full of anxiety. They're full of, of all kinds of drama in our, our lives. We're, we're not in control of our, our career paths. We're sort of at the mercy of our superiors. And, and, uh, and, and, and our financial situation is is in flux or it's scary or it's, it's not in control. And that's why we like the heroes of the Bible, right? Because they're perfect. They're in control. They know their purpose. They know exactly what's going on. They make all the best decisions. They're always wise and they are always clear on what God calls them to do and they always do it, right? Wrong. 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 The Bible is full of these, these people who are, are broken and fallen and make mistakes and know what God says but always make the right decisions. The Bible doesn't flatter its heroes. I mean, if you read it, it really just sort of bears all of the details of their lives. These people, these so-called heroes that we look to have feet of clay, and they are easily taken off of their pedestals. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's right there for us to see there in, in scripture, these fallen, broken people. And I have to say that I am so grateful for these stories. It makes me see my, my own sin and my own brokenness and I can understand these people. But I do have to admit that I'm also grateful that the Lord is finished writing scripture because who would want the deepest, darkest secrets and sins of their lives written for everyone to read for generations, for millennia to come, for movies to be made about these failures, for sermons to be preached about these failures, for for books to be written and discussed about these failures. In our series, Unlikely Heroes, we've been looking at these normal people that God has been using despite their sins, despite their failures, despite their rebellion, how he's used them for extraordinary purposes in spite of all of those things. And the last couple of weeks, we, we talked about Moses the first week, and last week we discussed Samson, and this week, we're looking at another unlikely hero named David. And regardless of what you might think and sort of your picture of who David is right from the beginning today, regardless of your image of David, this guy was an unlikely hero. He was a normal man just like you and I. He was a normal person full of faults and brokenness. As I studied the life of David over the last few days, I was just really broken hearted at all of the, the, 
the misery that he endured, all the suffering that he endured, all of the times that he missed the mark or he knew what was right and he did what was wrong. He always returned to the Lord and always repented to him. But David was a normal guy like you and me. And if you feel unqualified, if you feel uncalled, if you feel unloved, if you feel unknown by God, my hope, my hope today is that you leave this place feeling called and qualified and loved. Not because of what you've done and what you've accomplished, but because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That's my hope today. Because on all fronts, David was an unlikely hero. It was unlikely that God was going to use him. David was an unlikely hero because of his physical limitations. What's the first thing you think of when I say King David? David and Goliath, right? Right? His physical limitations and that, that battle that he won against a giant. At first glance, David looked like just any other Israelite boy. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, or yes, chapter 16, starting in verse 6, we meet David for the very first time. Samuel the prophet and the last judge has been sent by God to find a king. And he tells him to go to Jesse's house and there he will find this king, but he doesn't tell him who it is. He said, you will know. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house, knocks on the door, meets Jesse, and it says this in verse six. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, this is the first son that passes by Samuel. He thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab, one of the older brothers, strong, handsome, Verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height, on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on an outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse continues to parade his sons before Samuel. His seven sons go before Samuel and each time the Lord tells Samuel, no. <laughs> Samuel goes, okay, well, um, Jesse, I, I was really thinking I was going to hear something from the Lord. Maybe we should do this again. I'm not sure. But just let me make sure, do you have any other sons? And Jesse goes, well, I do have one more, but he's out tending the sheep. Now think about that. <laughs> think about that. His own father overlooked him. He had all of these other brothers, all of these young, strong, wise men, courageous in battle, valiant young men, and he totally overlooked his son out tending sheep. One writer says that we very likely would not have even known the name of Jesse's youngest son had we lived next to him. Had we been his neighbor, we wouldn't have even known who David was. But while he had been overlooked by his own father and his own family and the people around him, God was using these sheep to train him how to lead his people. 
And so why does God choose like this? Well, it doesn't really make any sense. It's sort of upside down. And scripture, scripture gives us a little insight into this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing to a group of believers. He's writing to Jewish believers who are looking to the Lord for signs and wonders. They need concrete proof. They need evidence, right? And he's also writing to Greek believers. And these Greeks were, were looking for, in that, that culture, being able to debate and being a skilled orator and, ha- and being full of wisdom and being able to communicate. It was really, really valuable to them. And so they're looking for those kinds of traits in people to lead them. And Paul sets them straight. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, when they came, oh, sorry, he said, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love the way the message puts it. It says, isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? God says, guys, guys, you're looking for the appearances. You're looking for the people with experiences, the, the, the amazing resumes. You're looking for these people who are great speakers and great communicators, but I don't choose people like you do. I don't look to those kinds of things. I turn the nobodies into somebodies. And so though a young shepherd God says of David that this is a man after my own heart. And so I wonder what physical limitations you think you have. I wonder what physical limitations that you have in your life that you think make you incapable of serving God. David was also an unlikely hero because of his sins. And no sin short of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden has been discussed more and more and more than the sin of David and Bathsheba. And we can easily distort the characters in this story to think that they are morally corrupt human beings, but that's not true because what we know is that David was a man after God's own heart, and Bathsheba was a godly woman raised in a godly household. He, they were both sinful like you and I, and though David's sin was magnified because of his position, his sin was no greater than yours and mine. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I hope you're okay, this is sort of story time this morning. We don't have time to go over the whole life of David. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David now at this point has reigned as king for close to 20 years. He's probably about 50 years old. And he's an old pro at this job. He's a veteran. 
He's led his country for many years. He's fought in many, many battles with his men, leading them on the battlefield. And now he's taking it easy. He's become soft and a little self-indulgent. And rather than going to the battlefield and fighting with his men and for his men, he stays at home. And because of that, he becomes vulnerable to the enemy's attack. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that David was, his battle, his army was in battle against the Ammonites. And yet David stayed in Jerusalem. And that night he's standing on the rooftop enjoying the warm breeze and there looks below and sees Bathsheba bathing. And if passion were the greatest strength of David, it now becomes his greatest weakness. And he sends his servants to go get her. Knowing that she was married, he sends his servants to go get, with, go get her and he sleeps with her that night. And within a matter of weeks, she finds that she is pregnant. But it doesn't end there. David tells his commander on the field to send Uriah, her husband, who's there fighting on behalf of David and his country, to send Uriah to the front line of the fiercest battle. And word returns to David that the deed had been done and that Uriah, along with many other men, had died. And so not just Uriah, but many lives pay for the sin of David there. And so if you're keeping track, lust, adultery, deceit, betrayal, and murder follow in quick succession here in David's life. And you think, how could a man after God's own heart, fall so low. But if you're honest with your own heart, if you're honest with your own sin, you know how. So divinely instructed, David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan is sent by God to confront David about the evil that he had done. And this brings David to his knees in repentance and tears, and he writes Psalm 51 after this, a psalm that's saturated with humility and has become a comfort to saints and sinners all over the world for thousands of years. It says this in in Psalm 51, one through four. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let these broken bones rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew 
a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And listen to this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so God hears the heart of David and while David's sin was great, as we sing often here, God's grace was greater and God forgave him and would continue to use both him and Bathsheba. Their first child that she became pregnant with would die within weeks. But they would have a second child named Solomon who would grow to be king of Israel and become one of the wisest men in the history of this world. And though there were many kings who led Israel, David's lineage would be the only legitimate line that Jesus Christ would come from. And so from the sin of David and Bathsheba, God redeemed it and brought forth the Christ. David was also an unlikely hero because of his troubles at home. Now, everybody has trouble at home. Everybody has dysfunction in their family. If you think you're the only one, you're not, I promise you. But there are two kinds of trouble that you can have in your family. The kind of trouble that comes outside the home that you can't really control and the kind of trouble that happens within the home. And of the two, the trouble that comes within the home is the hardest to deal with. And David, trust me, had no shortage of trouble in his home. As a consequence of his sin, the the trouble began to play out in his family really for the rest of his life. He had children that rebelled against him and against each other. His palace was full of envy, suspicion, jealousy, and hatred, and it all broke out all over the place in his palace in incest and murder. And we don't have time to to read again all of the stories here, but just to name a few. Remember, David had eight wives Against what the Lord had commanded, he commanded that no king of Israel have multiple wives, but David went against this. He had eight wives, and he had children from all of these women, and one son, Ammon, raped his half-sister, and his other son, Absalom, murdered Ammon because of it. Absalom later tried to murder his father and died, and his oldest son, oldest remaining son, Adonijah, then tried to lead a coup against David and was later killed himself. David's home was a disaster. It was in total chaos. Treachery, betrayal, murder, deceit, all of these kinds of things just running rampant through his house. And he was chosen... He was chosen by God to lead the people of Israel and he couldn't even control his own household. He couldn't even control his own household. In my opinion, he's probably one of the weakest fathers in all of scripture. 
And yet God used him. And so I wonder how many of you in here have trouble at home and have disqualified yourself because of the personal struggles that you're enduring at home. I wonder how many of you have been hurt deeply by a family member and that wound is still fresh and there's still a lot of bitterness and hatred and anger wrapped up in it and you think until you get that resolved and fixed that you can't be used by God. Maybe you don't want to get it fixed. Or maybe you've been the one who's done the hurt. Maybe you've been the one who's done the wounding and you don't think that you can be used by God. God is calling you into his story. And he's saying to you, I want you to be a mentor of a young person. I want you to be the mentor of a person at work. He's saying, I want you to, to, to be a mentor at church or in the youth ministry. He's saying, I want you to share your faith at work. I'm urging you, I'm calling you to share your faith at work. I want you to use your suffering that you've experienced in your life to help bind up the broken hearts of those around you who are suffering. I want to use that. I want to use your suffering. I want you to lead a, a life group. I want you to step out and, and, and help disciple others around you. And you're saying, I can't. I can't. I'm not, I, I'm not able. I'm not, I'm not capable. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, I've experienced. Look, I don't know enough. You don't know what my personal life looks like. My family is a disaster right now. I'm not capable of doing this. I heard the story once, I think, of an ordinary guy that was close to Jesus. Blue collar, a little rough around the edges honestly, but a stand-up guy. Jesus saw something in him anyway. And this man grew close to Jesus and became one of his closest confidants. Spent more time with Jesus than just about anybody else. And Jesus saw something in this, this guy. He saw faith in him. He saw belief and he called it out of him. He saw it in him when he really didn't even see it in him, in himself. And Jesus changed his name. He said, I'm now going to call you Cephas. Aramaic, that means the rock. Because of his belief, who would want to be called the rock? It translates to Peter in English. He told Peter that he had such faith that on this rock he would build the church. But only hours before Jesus would be crucified, Jesus would look him in the eye and he would say, you're going to deny me, Peter. You're going to tell people that you don't know me. You're going to tell people that you don't believe in me. You're going to tell people that you don't want anything to do with me. In the middle of my greatest crisis,
crisis, you're going to deny me. And Peter said to him, he said, Lord, that's, that can't be true. That is not going to happen. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But that's exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. And so after Jesus was crucified, Peter goes back to his old life of fishing, the only life that he really ever knew. And I imagine him sitting on that boat with his nets cast in the water, lost in thought as he looked at the waves lapping against the boat, thinking, I blew it. I blew it. That was my shot. That was my chance. He believed in me. It was the greatest thing that I've ever known in my life, and I blew it. And he looks up and he sees a figure out on the shore standing over a fire. And a few minutes go by, he makes his way to the shore, and he has a private moment with Jesus standing over that fire and Jesus looks in his eyes and he says, Peter, I still choose you. What's the past burden that you've been carrying? Is it lust? Is it adultery? Talk to David and Bathsheba. Is it deception? Is it lying Abraham knew a little bit about that. Is it a a seedy past, a dark history that you have? God used Rahab, a prostitute. Is it hatred? Do you have anger in your heart? Do you battle against this? Read Jonah's story. Do you have do you have Issues of, of rage and acting it out. Are you an angry person? James and John, the sons of thunder they were called, still fit into God's plan. Have you ever, like Peter, dropped the ball at the most important time in your life? Read the book of Acts. John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, did the same thing. Some of us in this room think that we have to be victorious over everything in our lives to be able to be used by God. We think we have to have these perfect Christian lives to be considered by God and to be used by him, but if that's true, that none of these stories in this Bible make sense. None of them make sense. King David had failed miserably in his life in so many different areas, and you think that you have blown it so much in your life that you're not able to be used by God. That is the enemy's lie. That is the enemy's lie, and he wants you to believe that. And the reason that he dragged you down is so that you would believe that. But one of the reasons 
that these stories are in the Bible, that Psalm 51 is in the Bible, is to destroy that lie. And so what is it for you? Is it a limitation? Is it an an age? Is it a fear? Is it your personal life? Is it it your past? Whatever it is, it it doesn't matter. You need to file that thing away. Your disqualification, you file it away and you surrender it. And you renounce it over and over. The truth of the matter is that you may have achieved success in all kinds of areas of your life. In all kinds of different things, you might have accomplished great things for the Lord, but he may want to use the one thing you failed in for his purposes. He wants to use our mess-ups and make them his masterpieces. And so join David and plead with him along with all the, the saints who've gone before you. Join with them and say, oh God, I have screwed up. I have messed up. I have lied, I have cheated, I have stolen, I have hurt people, I have been hurt, I have suffered. Would you use my life to bring others to Jesus? Use my suffering, my brokenness, to bring others to Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning and we confess our need for a savior. We thank you, Lord, for characters, for people that walk this earth in flesh and blood who are in your scripture, who made mistakes and who are broken and are fallen. We thank you that you have given us these stories so that we might know that you would use our brokenness for your glory. Father, help us to lead lives as we go forward of righteousness and grace and mercy. But would you use us, use our story, God. We may be ordinary people, normal folks, flesh and blood, Lord, but would you use us for your extraordinary purposes? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna enter into communion and we're gonna have a time just to reflect on the grace and the love of Jesus, the love that would drive him to the cross, the love that would drive him to spread his arms and be pierced and nailed to that cross to die for our sins so that we might have hope. And so this is a celebration This is worship. Our servers are gonna come forward, they're gonna be in their stations. And we take communion by dipping the bread. I just want you to use this time to, to hear the love of God whispering over you. I still choose you.
We invite you to come during this time. Our stories are a collection of moments tucked away deep inside our hearts and minds. Moments from the past. For some of us, what happened in the past can limit our present or cloud the future. We hear a voice from within, a voice that says, you are damaged goods. You are disqualified, weak. What this world sees as broken Jesus sees as beautiful. Where culture sees defeat, Jesus sees potential. What society labels as rejected, Jesus offers redemption. The Bible tells us that Jesus uses the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise. When we're at our weakest, That's the very place we can tap into the strength of God. It's in this new perspective that we realize our past doesn't have to define us any longer because we are the community of those who couldn't make the cut, the gathering of those not good enough. So may your grief bring about His goodness. May your pain bring out trust in his promises. The past that brought us shame can find renewal in one name, Jesus. Let's all stand together. Close. Peer partners are up here to pray with you. They're also in the back to pray with you. They'll be here after the service. Let's lift up the name of Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless. Go in peace.